0: open up to Ezra chapters 2, Ezra chapter 2, we're going to cover chapter 2 and 3 tonight and it's entitled Forsaking the Worldly for the Godly, Forsaking the Worldly for the Godly. The people that are now returning from Babylonian captivity, these who are returning represent men leaving the worldly life and going into, into the life and work of the kingdom of God. Let's begin with chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, <clears throat> everyone to his own city. Now, the phrase people of the province refers to the Jewish people of Judah who returned from captivity. Now, we can make some neat observations here. Now, remember in our last chapter, we read that not everybody that went into captivity went back to Jerusalem. Men forsake the worldly life by choice. Cyrus didn't order the Jews to leave Babylon. They chose to. They chose to leave. Everybody at one point left left Egypt as a nation. All right. All of Israel left Egypt as a nation. But they they left the captivity in Babylon as individuals. You see, heaven doesn't force anybody to give up their sin. Heaven does not force anybody to forsake the world. But they'll wish they had at the judgment. Now, for those who chose to leave Babylon, it was a good choice. It was a good choice. Why? Because it was better to build the temple of the Lord than to work in Babylon. Even though they were prosperous, because the spiritual is better than the subservient. It's good to serve God. Why? He's a good master also we observed from this move was it was a wise choice not only was a good choice it was a wise choice because they would be honored for building the second temple and they'd be blessed in their holy service to God it's a smart thing to choose the unworldly life listen to what God said in Deuteronomy 30 verse 15 and verses 19 through 20 he said now listen today I'm giving you a choice between life and death between prosperity and and disaster. He said, Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessing and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh that you would choose life, so that you and your descendants might live. He said you can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land of the Lord in the land that the Lord swore to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now there are only two categories in life life or death throughout the world we see that the key to life is determined by the choices that you make in life now you can choose your choice you can, you can make any choice you want you can choose your choice but you can't choose the results of your choice It was also a self-denying choice that these individuals made to leave Babylonian captivity and go back to their homeland. They had to leave behind family and friends and possessions of the life that they had made there during those 70 years of Babylonian captivity. They had to leave the comfort and security that they had there and they now to, to go and enter the unknown life in future. You see, the unworldly life requires denying self, but it's so worth it. It was also a believing choice, a choice by faith. You see, they believed that God would be with them, and they believed that God would go before them. There are huge responsibilities pursuing an unworldly life. There are many temples to build, but you know what? God is an infinite resource. He provides everything that we need. There are also something else that we can observe here, that there are many encouragements for men, and this also, it's men and women, for men who forsake the worldly life. There are spiritual encouragements. Verse 36, and again, we're not going to read all 70 verses because the whole thing is really a lineage of all the the number of people that came back and the things they brought back with them. So I'm just going to pick out the, the high points of the verses here. But in verse 36, it says that the priests were with them. They came back from Babylonian captivity with the people to Jerusalem all that belongs to heaven's priesthood goes along with the unworldly life in its march from Babylon, which is a type of the world, to Jerusalem. There were joyful encouragements. Verse 41 says the singers are with them. The singers were the Levites who had the responsibility of praising God with music. And even though only 128 singers, according to verse 41, returned to Jerusalem, at one time there had been as many as 4,000 people, according to 1 Chronicles 23, 5, it says, who praised the Lord with musical instruments in Solomon's temple. And men who try to live an unworldly life are accompanied by a lot of heavenly joys. The The singers that are listed in verse 65 now, They were not the choir that was mentioned in verse 41. They weren't the same singers in verse 41. These in verse 65 were professional singers that were employed that were used for banquets and feasts and, and funerals. Their presence could be a sign of luxury because it seems that many of the Jewish people had achieved some prosperity while they were living in Babylon. The Jews were not confined or restricted in what they could do while they were in Babylonian captivity. They were only restricted from returning to their homeland. So the large number of horses listed in verse 66 also suggests prosperity among those who returned to Jerusalem. And before this time, horses in Israel had been used only for war and ceremonies. Only the very rich and well-armed owned horses. The rich also, though, rode mules because horses were scarce in Israel. The gatekeepers came back, verse 42 says. The gatekeepers were also Levites. There uh, there and uh, and also their duty was to stop uh, any unauthorized, unauthorized people from entering the restricted area of the temple. Now, again, the gatekeepers might not seem like an important job, but it was they were levites and their duty was to stop any unauthorized people from going into the restricted area of the temple there was also community encouragements in the people that came back it says in verse 64 notice the whole assembly was together the whole assembly was together according to verse 64 the friendships of the unworldly life are helpful there were different kinds of encouragements because there were many to help the people in their work in many different ways. And then, when it comes to forsaking the worldly life, men must be concerned about their own witness of the truth. Their witness must be honorable. But here was the problem. According to verses 59 and 63, Some couldn't identify their father's house. That is, they couldn't identify their family ancestry. They couldn't identify their lineage. And even though these people couldn't prove their Jewish origin, they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But, without genealogies, they were excluded from the priesthood, according to the law of Moses in Numbers 16. The governor Zerubbabel was careful to follow that law. And, was, and he declared that those who were hoping to be priests when they went back, he said, you guys cannot eat of the most holy things because they couldn't prove their lineage that they were Levites, that they were priests or from the Aaronic priesthood. That meant they, that they could not, they should not take part in any priestly functions until a priest could consult the Urim and the Thummim, according to verse 63. They weren't to do anything because, again, they couldn't prove their lineage. So the priests would go to the Urim and the Thummim, which were sacred lots that were used to determine God's will. So they couldn't eat of the most holy things. They were excluded from the priesthood because they couldn't, uh, didn't know their family ancestry. And they had to wait until the priest consulted the Urim and the Thummim to find out God's will for them. Three families of priests, according to verse 61, couldn't prove their relationship to the nation through genealogical records. And because they couldn't show or prove their family ancestry, they were officially excluded. But they were still allowed to go with the Jews on their trip to the homeland. Now today, the Christians should know that he or she is a son or a daughter of God. Paul could say in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed. So you see, we should have a know-so salvation, not a think-so salvation or I hope-so salvation. And a lot of people, after they get saved, don't feel like they're saved. Don't. Maybe believe that they're saved. That's why you trust in what the word of God tells you. 1 John 5, 13. John said, these things. Here, notice, Here's why I've written these things to you. Who believe in the name of the son of God. That you may know. Notice. That you may know. That you have eternal life. Because a lot of times when we get saved. There, there may not be A feeling. There might not be thunder and lightning that in some people's testimonies they, they experience. And the devil's surely going to tell you, what did you do? You really think you're saved? You really think you're going to heaven? You really think your sins have been forgiven? You just went up there and embarrassed yourself. And so you begin to believe. You begin to doubt. That's why you go to the Word and listen to what John says I've written these things. For those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. Don't go by feelings. Don't go by experiences. Know that you confessed your sins. You confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will be saved. Believe that. Know that you have eternal life. Don't depend on feelings when it comes to your salvation. Today we don't carry a Christian ID card. Or a certificate to prove we're Christians. Why? The evidence is within us. 2 Corinthians 5 17, Paul said, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. She's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Your life will show the evidence of the new birth. But is that character of a new life in you? Does it show? Do you have the testimony of good character? There's also an evidence around us. That is, who do men say that we are? Are our lives acceptable? Can we be the builders of God's temple? There's also evidence above us. God's witness is true. It's in the book of life. But here's the thing, that evidence of the new birth, that new life is soon lost by sin. Don't lose it or don't give it up for worldly gain. Don't lose it by marriage out of the faith like we read in verse 61. Verse 61 tells us that one of their ancestors married a daughter of Barzillai. Now he was a great man. We read about Barzillai in David's time. And this particular uh, man, he took pleasure in the idea of being associated with such an honorable family as Barzillai. And he preferred that before the dignity of his priesthood. He chose to have his children called after the Barzillai's family name. And he chose their lineage rather than the house of Aaron. And so they lost it. And if we lose it, we will be morally unclean, we'll be spiritually wicked, eternally cast out, according to verses 62 and 63. We have to prove our lineage in Christ as well as possess it. We have to live it. Then in verses 68 through 70, we see that that forsaking the worldly life, when we forsake the worldly life, men must give themselves totally to the new work that's given to them. Notice in verse 68, it says, They came to the house of the Lord. They came to the house of the Lord. And when they came to the house of the Lord, the first thing that many of those coming back did when they reached Jerusalem was to contribute, to help out in rebuilding the temple. Verse seventy shows that offerings were brought even before the people settled in their houses. And notice, they came to the work. The work didn't come to them. They came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, verse 68 says. And when they saw the ruined temple, it put an urgency in their spirit. Awakening the duty that they had, their their sense of duty. We need to rebuild God's house. Nehemiah 2.17 says, you see the distress that we're in. How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah said, Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. The people gave to the work of God. Verse 69 here says, Notice, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work. Men who enter into the unworldly life must be ready for all the work of the Lord. Everything that God has for us. We need to be ready for it. Now let's get into chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses the man of God though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord both the morning and evening burnt offerings they also kept the feast of tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So when the Israelites got to Jerusalem, they peacefully and joyfully took back their old homes. Many of them probably were returning to the same fields and the same homes that their fathers had been taken from. And then they showed a godliness that was probably partly due to their long discipline in Babylon. Their service to the Lord after the return was marked by these things, was characterized by this, spontaneity. They jumped into it right away. Verses 1 and 5 show that. There must have been a lot of work to do to make those neglected fields over all of those years they were in captivity able to produce crops again. So there must have been a strong need for committed and continuous work on the parts of the people who returned, And without being ordered, without being ordered by any spiritual or secular leader, the people, it says in verse 1 here, notice, gathered together, notice how, as one man to Jerusalem. The people had come with a common desire of worshiping God, verse 9 shows us. A common drive, a common urgency, a common inspiration urged them, all of them to leave their businesses, their family duties, and repairs to the city so that they could worship. And while they were there, verse 5 says, they willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. Their service Was and ours is too more acceptable to God because of our individual godliness and worship it wasn't forced it was natural they didn't do it because somebody ordered them to do it but because of the will of God and our love for Jesus Christ that's what moves us to serve with energy and generosity they were also in the right place verse 1 and 3 says, they gathered at Jerusalem and they built an altar on the very same spot where the old one once stood, verse 3 tells us. Because it had been very specifically ordered that only on that one site should sacrifices be offered to God. So they respected the order making their offerings in one place. Now the believer today, we don't have any restrictions that limit us. To where we can worship today. Jesus said the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Wherever God's people are and wherever they meet in truth and sincerity. Jesus is in the midst of them. And every place is holy ground. To that faithful heart. And even though we're not limited to a place. Yet there is such a thing as the right place where God wants us to be. Psalm 87, 2 says, still the Lord loves the gates of Zion and to worship him regularly at his house, to unite regularly with his people at the table of the Lord is a valuable and acceptable service. Hebrews tells us not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. They came in unity with one purpose, one heart. Verse 2 shows us the unity. They, came, they gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Jeshua and Zerubbabel and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, they stood together to build the altar of the Lord. And it's a good thing when leaders and the people are together and they don't let their influence or lack of influence divide them. But they come together as a people because they have the same cause, the same purpose, and they come and they're strengthened, and they strengthen each other rather than weaken each other's hand in doing the work of God. And we see the readiness, their eagerness to do the work of God. In verse 3 and verse 6, after using Solomon's temple as their place to worship, it was normal that the people should want something more than a, oh, well, this will do Altar. But the people were so excited to return to the old sacrifices, which hadn't been offered for a long time, they couldn't wait to build a temple. So before the the foundation of the temple was laid, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, according to verse 6. You see, the heart that really isn't interested in spiritual things, they will find an excuse not to worship. The heart that really isn't interested in spiritual things, they will find an excuse for neglecting the sacrifice to be offered. But the eager-hearted, they'll be quick to use whatever is available so that the service of God won't be interrupted. A half-hearted godliness will give up with the first obstacle. But spiritual sincerity will be inspired to come up with ways. Never keep from praising God because you don't have a worship team. Nor keep from preaching the the word of God because we don't have the best sound equipment. Godly passion will find a way to praise and proclaim the glory of God whether skill is present or absent. And we're going to talk more about that topic of whether skill is present or absent. Then they did it with regularity. Verse 4 said, They offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. In obedience to God's word, the Israelites observed the, Feast of, the tab- a Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, which commemorated the earlier generations wandering in the wilderness. Now there has to be room for the Holy Spirit to move and to lead and to guide, or our spiritual life will become just mechanical, robotic, It'll lose its liveliness, its flexibility, and the beauty of God. But there has to also be consistency, constant services, daily devotion, morning and evening prayer. Freedom and law have to work together, and they have to exist harmoniously together in every home and in every heart. And then we see in this gathering, we see the the comprehensiveness of it that is they all understood what had to be done according to verses 3 and 4 now conflicting feelings led them to the Lord their fear led them to seek God and they set up the altar because they were afraid of the people around them verse 3 says and their joy also led to devotion So they kept the joyous feast uh, of tabernacles and it says, verse four, they were united in their service where their gladness won over their fear. And the truly committed person is the one where all roads, whether good or bad, lead to the throne of grace, to the one whom all things, no matter how different and difficult, makes them think of God and brings their grief and their fear as well as their joy to hope. In their master. Verses 8 through 13. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel the son of uh, Shealtiel, Jeshua the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his son and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Hanadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of the King David of, the King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praying and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, uh, old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people should uh, could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. Now here we have in verse 8, It says, In the second month of the second year of their coming, they began the work. Any leader that was with the Jews that returned could have given a good reason for waiting to build the temple at a better time. For example, the altar was already set up for them to worship. So that was good enough for now. Because you see, God would accept any offering that came from the heart, that comes from sincerity, no matter how poor the outward circumstances might be. So when I said earlier, you know, that that, that regardless of, of their skill or their lack of skill, God accepted what they were doing because of the conditions. But again, the altar was ready at the time was already set up for worship. That was good enough for the time. And God accepted the worship because it came from sincere heart, no matter how poor, again, the circumstances were. The fear of the people... Their incompetence to build a temple that would compare with Solomon's waiting till they could do something worthy for their God. And so all these things may have been good reasons for them not to go any further. And they may have been brought up. But if those things were brought up for not building the temple or rebuilding, they were overturned by the true thought that to the God who had redeemed them from bondage, and who gave them back their old freedoms and the land that they love, they owed God so much. And they owed Him the very best that they could offer, and they owed it to Him now. They learned a long time ago that the first fruits belonged to God who gave them everything. And it was fitting that as soon as they were established in their own land, that they, could, uh, they should build for Him who was the source of all their blessings. They should build for him, who was the source of all their blessings, the best house they could build. This was a thought of theirs, a true thought of theirs. And should find a home in our minds now. Let's not have the attitude, anything will do. Or we can do it later. But the very best we can do, the very best that can possibly be done for God, and we need to do it now. And we couldn't be, shouldn't be content, as it was said in 1 Chronicles 71. The ark of the covenant of the Lord should remain under curtains while we dwell in a house of cedars. We need to build him the best house that we can now. Whatever can be improved in his kingdom business should be improved. The slain lamb was to be without blemish. Deuteronomy 17, one said, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. What it was saying is you are to give him the best that you have. Not of your leftovers or of, of your defects. The building should be without any need of repair. Our church church building should be without any need of repair. The singing should be without discord. It shouldn't be a competition of who sings better, who plays better. Our service should be without mistakes. We need to let God's worthiness... Prompt us to give him the best quality, the beauty and the grace to be offered to our God, who has given us not just what we need and not just what we we can't do without, but the extravagant and the and the wonderful and the magnificent. He's given us all that. We should let nothing delay us from serving the Lord Jesus Christ now. The work, according to verses 8 and 9, it was organized. They went about doing God's work with great care and organization. They gave the work to different people. Look, they gave it to the Levites who were most interested and best instructed. They gave it to those who were of a suitable age. In verse 8, they were 20, age 20 or above. They sent away to Tyre and Sidon to Lebanon for the best workmen and for the best materials money could buy, according to verse 7. The high priest and the priests supervised the work and they saw to it that everything was done according to the book of the law of the Lord. We need to follow God's instructions when we do God's work. Not, oh, that's good enough or that will do. The work was quickly started, but it wasn't quickly nor carelessly done. And every part, each part was done by people who were especially skilled for it. You see, no amount of enthusiasm or desire for God's work can make up for the lack of intelligence and skill. We have to build up God's spiritual house, the church of Jesus Christ, not only inspired by a committed spirit, But also we need to be guided by a wise and intelligent use of the best ways and the best tools that we have. And then according to verses 10 through 13, there were mixed feelings about the new temple. Finishing the foundation for the temple, it required a lot of effort by everybody that was involved. But nobody tried to get praise for himself or recognition for their own hard work. Those who had returned to Jerusalem, they celebrated laying the temple's foundation in almost the same way the generation before them had celebrated the first temple. And we read there that in verse again, um, verse 11, two choruses were sung right away. One group sang, for he is good. And the other responded, for his mercy endures forever. Everybody praised God For what had been done. And James tells us all good gifts come from above, come from God. Our talents, our abilities, strength, leadership. And we should thank God for what has been done in us and through us, giving Him the glory. Fifty years after the temple was destroyed, the temple here was being rebuilt. Now, some of the older people remembered Solomon's temple and they cried. Because the new temple wouldn't be as beautiful as the first one. But again, the beauty of the building wasn't nearly as important to God as the attitude of the builders and the worshipers who built it. He's more interested in our our attitude. God cares more about what we are than what we accomplish. In closing, we all know and we all can see that our world is changing every day. And whatever great accomplishments we've made in the past, hey, they disappear and they deteriorate. We need to seek serving God with all of our heart and not worry about comparing our work with anybody else's. And because the temple was built on the foundation of Solomon's temple, the two structures weren't that different in size. But the old temple, oh, it was far more beautiful, far more elaborate and ornate. And it was surrounded by many buildings and a huge courtyard. Solomon's temple took seven years to build. Zerubbabel's temple took about four years. Solomon's temple was surrounded by a thriving city. Zerubbabel's temple was surrounded by ruins. So it's not surprising that the people cried when they compared this temple to the first one. The celebration after laying the temple foundation was expressed by different emotions. This scene here in verse 12 took place 50 years after Solomon's temple was destroyed. Some people shouted for joy, some were crying. The old men who remembered the magnificence of the first temple, they cried. And the ones who were looking at this new temple, they shouted for joy. Both of them were right. The Holy Spirit can move us to rejoice over the goodness of God's grace. And he can cause us to grieve over the sins that required him, that requires him to discipline us. And when we come into the presence of God, we may feel full of joy and thanksgiving. And at the same time, we can be bummed out because of our shortcomings. How we fall short of the glory of God. Father, we again thank you for this this word, God. And Lord, we thank you for the examples of the people. Father, who chose to live, who chose to leave the worldly life which Babylon represented for the godly life, which was represented by choosing to leave Babylon and going back to Jerusalem. And Father, may we as well have the same heart, God. As God gave two choices, choose life, or death, May we choose life. And may we choose to live. Leave the worldly life. And choose the godly life. To pursue the things of God. To be saved by God. To be used by God. For the kingdom of God. Maybe you're here tonight and you never made a decision for Jesus Christ. Well, by not choosing Christ, you've automatically chosen the worldly life. You have to choose to come out of that life. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And as they do, this time is for you to choose life over death. To choose the things of God over the things of the world. Which are temporal and the things of God are eternal. As we worship, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You want to choose Christ. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. and I'll meet you there and when the song's over, we'll say a simple prayer of faith together.